Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia Success Podcast, where we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. On this show, I work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to this special episode of Anesthesia Success. I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Tim Deer. Uh, it is his second time here now, so that officially makes you a friend of the show, Dr. Deer. <laughs> uh, he is the president and CEO of the Spine and Nerve Centers of the Virginias, obviously a key thought leader in the pain community, and I wanted to get his thoughts on how is he currently navigating these crazy times with coronavirus and understanding what is the role of an interventional pain practitioner with the interesting times in which we live. So Dr. Deer, thanks for joining. Well, thanks for having me. It's certainly an important time in history for us to talk to each other and continue to, uh, while we're socially apart, that we can continue to socially engage. So thank you for having me. Yeah. So just tell me a little bit about kind of what's on your mind right now. What are the things that have your attention as a physician and as a business owner? Well, I think number one, you know, I think we have to be um, really aware of our of our local surroundings where we are, and think about our families and friends, and make sure everyone's uh, staying at home as possible and uh, social distancing. So, number one, we got to take care of our families. Yeah. And number two, um, as healthcare providers, we have to take care of ourselves because if we get ill, we may take that disease uh, home to our, our loved ones. So, yeah. it's a that becomes more important than everything else as we engage with uh, patients and whatever fashion that may be. And as you know, many anesthesiologists uh, listen to you and also our pain physicians as well. So there's all these different hats people are wearing, but number one is to be a good shepherd of your, of your people and yourself and health. Cause if you're unhealthy, nothing else will matter. That's right. And is there anything specific you're doing right now to try to be extra attentive in these ways? Well, absolutely. You know, we, uh, when we do any type of urgent things here at the hospital uh, or have interactions, we're doing mostly telemedicine. So we're not really, interacting in person with very many people, which is a good thing for both the staff and the, the patients, right? But when there's an urgent uh, procedure, we're doing no elective procedures at all. So that's also reducing our use of PPE and our use yeah. of ORs. But we are doing some urgent things. For example, I just had a, someone a moment ago had a herniated disc and, and she really needs surgery probably, but they, they're trying to avoid back surgery. And so we, yeah. um, you know, the patient has to be consented that it's an urgent procedure and that they're in severe pain and they can't wait a month or two, which is what we need to do. Maybe yeah. three. We'll see how long yeah. this goes. But when I when I leave, I come to the facility in my street clothes. I take those off, put those away, uh, put on uh, long sleeve protective gear and, and, and scrubs and uh, wear my uh, N95 mask and the scrub mask over it to try to preserve it because we don't have very many of those. And, yeah. and then if I'm engaging with a patient, but then when I, before I leave, I, I'll take off all those uh, materials, put them in a, in a dirty receptacle, we'll take home and wash immediately. And then I'll take a, a shower at, at work and uh, put on clean clothing. And when I get home, I leave my shoes outside because uh, certainly you can track in uh, this virus into your into your house. Your pets can get it on their on their feet, and yeah. so many ways this virus has been shown to spread around the world. So, yeah, I'm really trying to engage in all those good best practices, and um, I think those are important. Yeah, and you mentioned telemedicine. I'm curious. This is probably something that for most uh, practitioners out there was like an ancillary consideration, mostly in rural areas, and sort of like a uh, something that was a very small minority of the way that you would provide care. And now it's like such a major part of things. Talk to me a little bit about how you scaled that or did you have to initiate it or how did that yeah. play out for your practice? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty fascinating actually, you know, so uh, we uh, never had that 
before, um, you know, and never had the capability. And then when we realized that we that people need to social distance a few weeks ago, uh, I'm going to have to get credit to a couple of our team, yeah. Ashley Comer, our nurse practitioner, who's amazing, and Stacey Wyatt, who runs our clinic. They were here all weekend setting up Doxy.me, which is a home telemedicine service. And uh, by Monday, we decided to do this on a Friday. By Monday, it was fully up and running, and uh, I, I embraced it. You know, it's, it's like it's like you know, 15 years ago when I embraced electronic health records. A lot of my colleagues thought it was uh, too burdensome, and I embraced it right away. And so I embraced telehealth, and our patients really like it. Um, you know, we're doing some exams, if you will, on the phone, uh, watching people walk around, bend, move, twist, and talking yeah. with them. And we're saying, you know, well. We'll schedule something eight weeks from now, 12 weeks from now for you. So I think that the transition to telemedicine has been really easy. Hmm. And, you know, I think uh, if you're not using it in your practice, you're really missing out on, on helping people. So our whole team is engaged with that. Now we're trying to see no one in the office unless they have an urgent procedure. Yeah. And no one at all. So, that's so it sounds like well. within the course of just a weekend, you were able to scale up to be able to provide sufficient capacity for anybody who needed telehealth services. Yes, we had all four of our physicians, our, our four extenders, uh, the whole team uh, with okay. telemedicine in within three days. So if okay. someone says it's too hard to do, uh, then they're they're not they don't have the right uh, people on their team to to do it. Now I, I give myself no credit for that; uh, it was my team that did it. But sure. you know, I really I really realized uh, very quickly that was the best thing to do for our patients to keep them safe. From a hardware standpoint, is that as easy as like buying a stack of iPads and giving one to everybody? Uh, I have no idea that, how that works. It, really. it, it, no, it's easier than that. I could okay. do it off my computer. I use every oh. day, and and uh, we have a you know there's a HIPAA compliant. There's different HIPAA compliant tools. The patient gets in a link, they click on it. Mm-hmm. If they have uh, a phone uh, that has a camera or a computer that has a camera, you can immediately see them and talk with them. And even in rural areas like West Virginia, we've had great success with that. Most people have some some form of internet service with a camera. If not, then the, then the federal government and the state government has relaxed some of the rules about seeing people. We'd prefer to yeah. see you and talk right. to you and, and, and be able to do some sort of exam via video. But if we can't, then we're allowed to, to, to you know, you talk with you instead. And then that's that's not as good, but we'll take it. You know, it's better than making someone come in. And, you know, a 70-year-old person come into our office uh, is not good unless they have a real reason to be here. Right. Have you found that the regulatory environment has been able to adapt quickly enough to be able to give you the latitude that you as a physician need to get people care in a timely way? I think so. Yeah, I think that I think both the state and federal government have done a really nice job of of, of really surprisingly, you know, most things are bureaucratic, as you know, and terrible and takes 10 years to change something. But both the state of West Virginia and uh, the uh, federal government have done a very nice job, I think, of of helping us uh, with regulatory uh, limits on both HIPAA, where you can actually do things like phone calls and things, and things like uh, billing for for uh, virtual phone calls and videos, and and um, you know being able to prescribe uh, by seeing someone versus uh, you know seeing them in person. You know now I'm working with a, a lab to start looking at some home lab uh, urine toxicology and biomarkers at home. Yeah. I mean those everyone's adapting. It's it's yeah. been uh, well, it's a tragic time and very petrifying for all of us. It's at the yeah. same time it's pretty encouraging the human spirit that we're adapting so quickly in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's funny. I think the the American ethos in this instance is kind of a two-edged sword. We look at somewhere like South Korea where they have very quickly had like, I think a pretty unified response. Plus they've been prepared with these types of events in the past where here in the States we're like ruggedly individualistic is kind of hardwired into us. 
And so it's, I think from a public health standpoint, it's difficult to have a unified response in some ways, but it also provides opportunities for creativity, problem solving, people solving problems in new and exciting ways. And that's, that's kind of fun to see from a human standpoint, I think. Yeah, I think it's going to change what we do long term. I think there'll be a lot of patients who live, you know, three or four hours from me that uh, have to drive so far because we're kind of a tertiary center that we may do their, their, their future visits by telehealth uh, as much as possible, you know, because uh, it's so much easier on them and so, so much more cost effective for them. And and so I think it is going to change a lot of things we do. And and it's funny what you said about the individualism of Americans, you know, as you know, many parts of the country have responded differently based on what they're seeing. And uh, I I think it's real important that we don't criticize each other. You know, some people uh, on Twitter, for example, are criticizing people for being too, too uh, paranoid and other people because yeah. people are being not paranoid enough. And I think we just need to educate, not criticize. And that's what yep. I've been trying to, trying to tell my young colleagues is that's just edu- If you think someone's doing something stupid, don't criticize them, educate them, right? Because if you criticize yeah. them, they're going to fight you back. But if you yeah. educate them, maybe they'll learn, right? That's yeah. what we're hoping. And the truth may be somewhere in the middle. And I myself have been somebody who's had to intentionally unplug from med Twitter periodically just to maintain my own sanity. You're a smart man. You're a smart man. I, I think the truth probably I'm a, I'm a lockdown everybody type guy person, yeah. but you know, that's uh that's just me. And I, that doesn't mean I'm right, but that's, that's where I've been. I've been paranoid from day one. I've been told by my friends, but uh, yeah. it is a, it is a good time to be paranoid when there's a pandemic. Right. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I'm over here on the Eastern seaboard in Philly. We're looking up to New York and we're like, we're just kind of waiting for the tsunami. And I, I, I certainly kind of feel similarly. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I'm curious, you know, as a, so obviously you're, a practitioner. You're doing procedures for patients, but you're also a business owner. You're an employer. You're somebody who sort of has people that you look after and care for from an employment standpoint. So this, as a business owner, this is a a crazy time. I mean, there was the stimulus bill that was passed on Friday, many of the implications of which we're still figuring out what it all means. So for the practice owning physicians out there who are looking at their revenues getting crushed because of elective case volume dropping and having to adapt, but I know you're not making as much on telemedicine as you're, as you're doing, doing implants. And how, how are you thinking about this? What's on your mind and how are you kind of preparing and trying to equip and adapt to be able to give yourself as much runway as possible, to be able to do the best you can as far as compensating and employing and knowing that it's a tug of war and that patient volume eventually will come back, but it's kind of a war of attrition to some extent. Well, that was a long question, but rightfully so. It's very complicated. So I'll talk I'll talk kind of in generalities a little bit about sure. this because I'm talking to a lot of people from around the country, you know, and so I'm getting phone calls every day. You know, yeah, I would love to hear what you're hearing. Yeah. And, so, uh, you know, so there's a variety of responses. So let's go through those variety of responses and then I'll give you kind of a generic answer of what could be done. We're not, you know, I know there's still people out there doing implants and things. I think it's a mistake right now because if you get an infection, they have to go in the hospital. You're going to have to deal with an inpatient in a COVID hospital, taking up resources, but also putting everyone in danger, including yourself. So I'm doing no implants, no vertiflex, no SI fusions, no, you know, anything that requires incision or anesthesia or an OR blood transfusion, I think we should not be doing. That would be my recommendation to everyone. Um, not that I'm the world expert, but I just, I'm watching what's going on around the country. So, so no elective procedures of any type. And then you have um, uh, emergencies where you have an infected pump, a pump that's going to die with backup and where someone may go into terrible, you know, withdrawal from back. And so those are cases you have to do. So you have the, those two ends of the spectrum. Elective, we shouldn't be doing. And then you have the uh, emergency you have to do. And, then, and that requires an OR usually and an anesthesiologist, even though you have to do it, 
you really need to do everything you can to avoid that one too. Anything that requires potential blood transfusion, OR, or anesthesiology being needed, I think we need to really be good citizens. I'll get back to your business question in a minute, but I'm, this is framing, I'm framing this for you on the business side. If you think about our elective uh, small procedures we do, you know, we're doing about 10% of those right now because patients that are, you know, when we talk to them about something, we'll say, you know, is your pain severe enough that you can wait eight to 12 weeks to have whatever it is, you know, we need to do done. And if the patient can wait eight to 12 weeks, then they should wait for sure, right? There's no doubt about it. But then some people say, if I don't get something done in the next, you know, two weeks or four weeks, I'm going to have to go to the emergency room. I'm miserable. And what we don't want is people, you know, flooding the emergency rooms right now with chronic pain that gets acute flare up. So, so yeah. if the patient feels their pain is so severe that they can't function or take care of themselves, take care of their daily needs, if they live alone, they can't cook or stand, then I think it's reasonable to do a procedure in those people. That would be an urgent procedure based on the CMS guidelines. Sure. But then they have to sign a consent that they realize, you know, that their pain is that severe and that they know that, that, that certainly come into any facility, but it shouldn't be in an OR. It should only be in a procedure room. It shouldn't require anesthesia. And it shouldn't require any type of uh, resources that we might need for PPE. Now, mm-hmm. that's where that's where Azra came down. I think they came down correctly there. You know, acute bone fracture, acute disc, you know, chronic conditions with severe acute flare-ups. I think all those things are very reasonable. So that that means you're doing 10% of your normal volume. Uh, with a with a staff of the same number of people, so uh, right. now I'll get to the business part of what people are doing. So it's a really long answer, but I think it's a complicated question, and I'm giving you kind of an overview. Yeah, and then I'll I'll give you about two minute answer on the next part, and then we can go back into discussion. Option one: some people have closed their practices down, and and they've laid people off permanently, and they've panicked, you know. And I think that's a bad mistake because I do think in 12 weeks or 16 weeks it is going to come back to where people need us. And if you've been in your home, not moving, you're going to get stiff and be in a lot more pain than normal. Yeah. And so I think more people may need us than ever in, in three or four months. So I think to close your practice down, call it a day and say you're going to restart later is, is a bit of an overreaction that may hurt everyone in your community, including those who have acute urgent needs right now, because you may be able to keep people out of the surgery or room for back surgery or the ER or admission. Right. So, so that's one extreme. The other extreme is people doing everything is normal. That's, that's a good business model, short term, a terrible, terrible person model. Right. <laughs> you don't want to do that. That's a terrible mistake. So in the middle, you know, people like us, we're seeing people lay off some furlough, some of their staff. So if you furlough someone in some States, obviously it may vary from state to state. They can keep their benefits, but they can go on unemployment for three months or whatever that may be. And that's one model we're seeing for some employees. Model two is they, they keep everyone, but they cut everyone's salary, you know, and try to keep as many people on the payroll as possible. But but realizing no one's going to make what they would normally make. And that really comes back to how long you have resources to survive. And then the last thing I think is important, and you mentioned this, Justin, it's important. And that is these federal small business association loans. And, and if you can get one of those, I think you might be able to keep people on a salary. They can at least pay their bills. Even, even your employees that, um, you know, may not be utilized right now because of the restrictions, but, you know, and that's part of their forgivable loan program. Yeah. If you can bring back the physical therapist you're not using right now and, and, and pay them a salary that keeps them where they can pay whatever necessities they need. I think to me, that's going to be the way to go to keep our, our economy and our, our medical health care going. So that's what we're trying to do. We're, we've applied for several small business administration loans. And our goal will be to bring every single employee that you know, better furlough a few folks right now, but we want to bring everyone back um, in the next week or two, hopefully once that loan's intact and, and hopefully keep them whole. And then when this is over and we go back to normal policies, then I think we'll be able to, um, number one, have, make sure our community is intact, but oh, number two, we'll be helping people's families. And, and yeah. that's really what I'm hoping for. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, there's a lot more we could go into, but I know we got a few other things to cover. I want to just keep it moving. I'm curious from a, like a resources standpoint, can you talk a little bit about the role of the ASC versus the hospital as far as doing these urgent procedures? And is that something you've thought about at all? Well, so, you know, the, the question is a lot of ASCs do only elective procedures. So a lot of those ASCs are going to have to close because they don't do urgent procedures. They do elective procedures, you know? And so I think that's what they're going to have to really figure out. Are they doing things that are truly urgent? So, uh, and, and and I think if they are, that's fine. Uh, but if they use an anesthesia uh, or an OR that could be used for other things, and probably it's not a good use of resources. Now, if you're in a hospital facility and there's an OR, you definitely don't want to use that for anything at all if you can help that either, right? right. So I think I think hospitals and ASCs both, uh, if the OR could be used for, for other, other things in, in high-impact areas like New York City or uh, New Orleans or Miami, unfortunately, as it gets worse, then you definitely should not be using those, those rooms. If you have a procedure room in the hospital where you have a team that can talk to the patient in detail, make sure it is urgent. That's what we're doing in every single person that we do anything with at all now. Is it really urgent? And, and if it really is, then that, I think that's very acceptable, knowing the patient is consented that they have a risk of coming outside their house, right? Because they could they, right. They're not social distancing, but I think ASCs are in, in general going to be mostly closing in American and high endemic areas because they're going to need the resources that would be used there, the PPEs, the anesthesiologists. So I, I would be shocked if many ASCs stay open over the next two to three months. They will most, probably mostly all close. Hospitals that have procedure rooms that are not OR rooms, that's where probably urgent procedures can be done, or in someone's office, if they have an office that requires minimal PPE and minimal um, resource use. Uh, I think that's where that should be done if it's done at all. Okay. I'm having conversations with a lot of fellows right now who are, you know, we've maybe been looking at contracts together for the last couple of months. And now all of a sudden, the way that we're thinking about a prospective job offer is totally different because the response of a practice to the current situation, what you just gave us option one, two, and three, either they panic and close or they furlough and try to make it work or business as usual. I think Understanding how the practice is responding probably goes a long way towards describing the future potential employment experience of somebody looking at an opportunity for like August, September. I'm curious, what advice would you give to a fellow who's trying to figure out what they're going to do after fellowship? So, you know, Aspen has a webinar tonight, American Opinion Neuroscience Society I founded, we talked about before. We have a webinar yeah. tonight on, on this issue. We have yeah. uh, four, four fellowship directors. We have uh, some fellows, some recently graduated fellows. It's petrifying if you're a fellow right now, right? You know, yeah. are you going to be called to the OR because you're an anesthesiologist? Are you yeah. going to call to the ICU because you're an anesthesiologist? You know, uh, for physiatrists, it may be a little bit different because they don't have the anesthesiology ability, but it is scary. You know, we have a, a, a physician joining us and we're going to honor her contract uh, totally. Uh, we have some some help from our facility, our hospital, to help us do that, which is very nice. Not everyone has that ability. Yeah. So if you've if you've entered a contract with a group, and in, in you know times of emergency, contracts are pretty invalid because I don't think any judge would hold that contract up in this situation, right? right. So, so I think what you probably need to do if you're a fellow right now, you need to contact the the leader of the group you're joining, and you need to ask uh, she or he, you know, what's my status? And and there is some options. You know, universities have some research type uh, jobs. They pay about two hundred thousand a year. And they, uh, you work one day a week clinically and four days a week doing research. And those, those are available at some major universities. So you can talk to you, maybe even talk to your fellowship director about that. There's some uh, part-time jobs out there where they need some, some help. You know, they need some help with anesthesia because the anesthesiologist is pulled to the ICU and you could go to, you know, to Omaha, Nebraska and do yeah. some per diem. Uh, yeah. that, that's, 
right now that's getting kind of busy because the anesthesiologists are pulled to the ICU. So that's a way to make a living, obviously. And then thirdly, you know, you might be fine and you may have to be willing to take a lower salary. That's say you agreed to take, you know, X dollars. The group says, we'd still like to have you come, but we're going to be really in bad trouble for three months. You might go and stay on your fellowship salary for the first three months with that new group, to, you know, just to say, can you pay me what I was making in fellowship and, 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 help you be part of the team the solution then so right. then they're still glad to have you they're not resentful to you because you, you were trying to get uh, your full salary and uh and then at the end of that three months you can have an agreement that my new contract starts that day you know? so yeah. that's another way to do it i think and i've heard a couple groups that are offering fellows to honor their job but they can't pay them a, a salary they agreed to and i've heard, heard a couple of fellows who's accepted that as, as, as a, an offer but then they get a new contract that says okay november 1st we're going to start in this new original deal and, and so all you're doing there is you're really continue your training right if you go with right. join some experienced people maybe they can help you get better yeah. at some procedures you missed yeah makes sense uh i got one last question that we'll close with i know we're coming up on time here and i appreciate your giving us a few minutes generously running out of the or to jump on the phone here so i anticipate and it sounds like you do as well there's going to be all this pent-up demand in a few months from all these people that are going to have to defer care and then in the fall, whenever it happens, there's going to probably be a surge. And not only is there going to be more patients, but there may be less practices because of the current turmoil. So for physicians who are trying to be forward thinking and position themselves for growth and scalability and to build in capacity, what types of things are you thinking about or would you recommend for either an individual doctor or for a practice to be able to defer for a while and then to address a big, uh, a much higher patient volume? Well, I think, you know, people are going to suffer because they can't have something done, right? So let's say, for example, you had two back surgeries, your leg is killing you, you had a simulation trial done, you know, by me, I have two patients like that, we did a DRG trial and a sim trial before this hit, and they're, it worked great for them, and they had hope, like, oh, I'm going to be getting relief, and now they can't have their procedure done, probably for a couple months, maybe three. And so they've been calling saying we're miserable, but it doesn't really meet the criteria for urgent because it's, you know, they've had pain for a year, right? So it's not an urgent thing. So it's really d difficult. So when that, when we get this, this situation improving, I think what we're doing, and I'm not saying we were the, we're the smartest uh, tools in the shed, but we, we're pretty good at this. Uh, we're using our, our uh, apps, our advanced practice providers and, you know, our nurse practitioners, I mentioned Ashley earlier and a couple mm -hmm. other nurse practitioners with us who we're using those folks with their skills and their talents to do a lot of our follow-ups, our new patient visits in the short term as we go forward, because we're going to need to be doing more, more procedure time. So I think we really think that we're going to, we're going to have such a pent up uh, demand of people who've been miserable that we're going to need to be probably available for procedures four days a week when this is over, yeah. uh, just to just to catch up on where we would have been for patients who have been suffering. And then after we get, I think, three or four months back into the normal realm, we'll go back to normal practice. But I think if you are blessed to have good advanced practice people in your group, they can be very, very helpful to this situation. And I mm -hmm. think so those who have that, you're in good shape. If it's physician only, then unfortunately, I think, you, you know, you're going to see patients have to wait a long time to get care. And uh, that's bad for the patient. Certainly the physician will be very busy when this is over, but I think the patient uh, will, will have to wait a long time because you can only do so many procedures in a day safely, right? right? So it's, right. Uh, it's one of those things. So it's going to be complicated, but for us, it's going to be APP-based uh, um, teamwork to get this done. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll close with that. Dr. Deere, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us today, and thanks for offering your, your perspectives. Always appreciate it. Great to talk to you again and uh, anytime. And God bless. Stay safe up there in Philadelphia. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. 
If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to anesthesiasuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesiology and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I would also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.